Okay, let's open up in prayer as we uh, seek God as we look at things far more important than AFL. Heavenly Father, it is with joy that we can call upon you as our Father. As the people of your creation, but who had dishonoured you. And even while we were in our rebellion against you, you loved and cared enough for your creation to send your son that he would die and bear the punishment on our behalf so that we could know you, that we could be restored to who you created us to be in relationship with you. Oh Lord, we thank you as we spend time to look to your word that it is the very word of God. It contains the very things that you designed for us to know and everything that we need to know about you to live in this world. But Lord, it's not just any old book. It's a, it's a book that has been inspired by your spirit and is understood rightly as your spirit works within us. And so, Lord, we don't come to it uh, presuming upon the eloquence of words. But Lord, we ask that you would be so pleased to speak to us, that we would hear the very word of God not the words of Steve, and I pray that you would keep my mouth uh, from saying things that are not faithful to your word. And Lord, as we see you at work in the life of the early church, and we see something of who we are in response to you, help us to be humble, to see our responsibility, to walk in obedience dependent upon your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you're more than well aware Last year when we had the referendum on the whole the marriage plebiscite thing, one thing which came out of that is there was some serious passion that came out in discussions on both sides of the debate. Sure, at times it got really, really ugly on both sides of the debate. But there was one thing which came out of it which really struck a chord with me. Now, it's the concept. I'm not speaking favourably of the conclusions they came to, but the concept of it. Because when the gay community spoke about the issue, there was this deep, passionate cry of, this is who I am, it is not right that anyone should stop me living and acting in accordance with who I am. Now, I don't agree with all the way the, the logic that comes to how they applied that, but just that passion of that thought of someone saying, this is who I am. I cannot help but be who I am. And what that got me questioning is, there's something far more important than our sexuality. And as I said, I don't agree with the way in which they came to those conclusions with the statements they made. We have a relationship with a living God which gives us a new identity. I was wondering, is there that same passion in the Christian community? This is who I am. I cannot help but be who I am. I cannot help but live in accordance with who I am. So we've begun preaching our way through the book of Acts. We've seen the beginnings of the early church and we've seen a people who were bold, who could not live in any other way but who they were as followers of Jesus Christ. Something that we'll see again in our passage that we're looking at this morning. It's our sixth sermon as we've gone through the book of Acts. And it's a book which has got lots of twists and turns along the way. 
Like it begins in the setting where Jesus has been risen from the dead. He's teaching his apostles more information about his kingdom and the coming of his Holy Spirit. And he gives them that great commission in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we got to Acts chapter 2, the, the events at Pentecost, we saw the way in which the Holy Spirit did come. And they did receive power with signs and wonders. The apostles spoke the wonders of God in languages that were unknown to them and people heard things about the wonders of God in their own language. And as they gathered around these people, they said, what do these things mean? And Peter stands up and preaches a pretty good sermon for a first sermon with a response of 3,000 people coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ on that day. When they're asking, what, how, what do these things mean? Peter says, what you see here isn't something new. This is what God has told us he's going to do. When Joel said in Joel chapter 2 that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and, and they will prophesy, this is what you're seeing. When the, Jesus who came, who was the Messiah, this is what God foretold in the scriptures, that the Messiah must suffer and die. That even Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father was a scriptural necessity because God said that one would reign on his throne forever and he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. It was a powerful day when 3,000 were added to their number. But as you see, as the Spirit came upon them, they were filled with the Spirit. At the end of chapter 2, talks about what were the implications for the community of the Christian believers how they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to prayer, devoted to fellowship, their unity with God and unity with one another, devoted to the breaking of bread and sharing in communion. There was a sense of awe amongst the people. There was a sense of joy. There was a radical love in which people happily gave up their own possessions in order to meet the needs of others who had needs. And the Lord added daily to their number in the midst of that type of community. When we got to Acts chapter 3, we see the first specific detailed description of a miraculous thing that happened within the context of Jerusalem. There was a man who had been lame from birth. We saw last week that he was now 40 years old when this happened. The man had never walked a step. And Peter said to that man, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. Rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it caused quite a stir because people had seen this guy walking as they go in and out of the temple. They see this guy begging for money at the gate to be able to get by to survive. And all of a sudden, he's not only getting up and walking, he's leaping. And he's giving credit to Jesus Christ for his healing, which had come in full. When you get to the end of chapter 3, you think, Looks like the gospel's just going forth in abundance, completely unhindered. But I said it's a book of twists and turns. Last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 to 22, where the result of all of this commotion, Peter and John are brought before the chief priests, the elders and the scribes, the same group that Jesus had been brought before to give an account, to question by what power have you done these things? 
Now they're probably thinking, these are the same people that Jesus has stood before and testified about who Jesus Christ is, who his identity is, and they've crucified him. And they're probably thinking the same is headed their direction. But there's some similarities between their situation and Jesus. The, the people who are asking the questions are in no denial about the good things that have happened. They know that this man was definitely lame and is now healed. They can't deny the miraculous things that have happened before them. But they don't like the fact that it's being proclaimed that this is being done in the name and in the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the people that said, this Jesus Christ, crucify him. Let's wipe him out. Let's get rid of him. And now the apostles are claiming, this is the Messiah. He's raised from the dead. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father. And what you have seen has been done in his name, by his authority, by his power. Not only that, they go on to say in the salvation in no other name. Talk about being bold. The same people who crucified Jesus, when Peter and John are asked to give an account, they just lay it out there. This is Jesus. And if you want salvation, there's no other way than through this Jesus Christ, the one you crucified. Now, the leaders aren't too sure what to do about it because, in one sense, they, again, they want to wipe him out. Let's get rid of Peter and James. Let's stop this. But people are captivated. They have seen this. They're getting popularity. And they don't want to get the people offside by doing something to Peter and John. So in kind of an act of desperation, they just say, we forbid you from ever speaking in this name. And then they let them go. Now we live in days where, as Christians, often people fear that now our freedom to share about who we are is being limited. And we start to wonder, what are these going to be the implications for the going forward, the furtherance of the gospel? And I'd like to encourage you with this point. When you think about what goes on in the rest of the book of Acts, that massive gospel explosion happens in the context when the people are told and commanded, you cannot speak about Jesus at all. And today we see the response of Peter, John, and just the general Christians to the suppression order. The order that we're going to look at things is, what is a Christian's refuge in verses 23 to 28? A prayer that God answers in verses 29 to 31. And the marks again of a spiritual filled Christian community in verses 32 to 37. So firstly, a Christian's refuge. Now you've probably never been told you can never say the name Jesus Christ ever again. But odds are high, if people know that you are a Christian, at some point you've probably received something by way of a little bit of backlash whether it's maybe something you've said on social media and someone's made an archy response or something you've just shared that somebody else has written. I want you to think, how does that affect you when somebody opposes you or, or speaks negatively about you because of your faith in Jesus? Because the degree to which that affects you reveals a lot about what you think about other people and also what you think about God. Now, sadly, I've known of Christians who've received some opposition because of their Christian faith, and it's absolutely shattered their faith. 
They've walked away from the church. They've completely separated and isolated themselves. What that communicates is that the words or opinions of other people bear more weight, gravity and influence on my identity of who I am than the very words and promises of the almighty God who created everything. It's a bit silly, isn't it? That we would be so moved and affected by God's creation more so than the creator who loved us and who's given his son for us. We need one another. In times of difficult, the last thing you want to do is to separate yourself from your Christian community. I like the way the Bible speaks about the church. The church is being spoken of as being a body that belongs to one another. Like if I stub my toe and I do it regularly, I don't start looking around the room for a meat cleaver and say, chop it off, it's no good. We need one another. We belong to one another. The Bible reminds us, don't forsake meeting together. That's not just because God wants a certain number of people in churches to meet numbers and quotas, but we actually need each other. The body is God's provision for his people to help us, to support us, to encourage us to grow in the things and to encourage us to be more of who we were created to be. The last thing you want to do is to separate yourself from the provision that God has given us. For Peter and John, they return to the fellowship of their group of believers and tell them everything about all that has happened. Now, we've seen the boldness of Peter and John. Clearly, they're not moved by the words of the religious leaders. But what about the general everyday Christians? How do they respond? Look at verse 24. When they hear the things that happen, they lift their voices to God in prayer. Their first port of call when they hear that we're not allowed to talk about Jesus anymore, they don't go, oh no, what, what can we do? They're not panicking, thinking, well, let's stop, it's, it's clearly game over. They lift their voices to God in prayer. And I want us to think about this. In times of trouble, where do you turn? What is the first thing which you turn to? Because whatever that thing is, is what you believe deep down in your heart is going to be most helpful, effective and powerful to deal with that situation. Or to put it in other terms, you are making that thing your God. You are putting that thing in the place of your God. You are saying, this is the most powerful, effective and useful thing for me at this point in time. So it's a question of what God do you turn to, not just what thing do you turn to. And if it's not the God of the Bible, why would you sell yourself short of the wonderful refuge of the Almighty God who has given his Son for you, who is able to do abundantly more than all we can ever ask or imagine, who does everything he sets out to do, who cares for his people, why would you turn to the things which he created. Now, I need to recognise that sometimes we just have really badly established habits. 
Say maybe you might have for 20 years had a habit, you always go to this particular thing or this person when hard things come. And you think it's hard to break out of that habit. And it is hard to break out of habits. But if you recognise that God is the most satisfying one to go to, the most necessary one to go to, then shouldn't our prayer be, God, change my habits. Change my habits. Help me to turn to you and turn not to the foolish things that I've turned to in the past. And as this community of believers come before God in prayer, their prayer isn't, dear God, change the rules that say that we can't talk about Jesus and help us to live a happy and peaceful life doing that. In fact, before they even address the issue, they praise their God for who he is. And I don't say they do that in the sense of earning brownie points by flattering God, then somehow he's going to be more conducive to give a good answer. But when you rightly understand who your God is, only then will you be able to put the difficulty or the situation into its correct perspective. As A.W. Tozer often says, the person who comes to a right view of God is automatically relieved of a thousand temporal problems because when you rightly see God, you rightly see your situation in correct perspective. So as they come before God in prayer, they, they address him as the sovereign Lord, which if you put the Greek word over into English words, it's basically our English word despot. One who is of supreme authority with absolutely no contest whatsoever. Demonstrated by the fact that he was the maker of heaven and earth and everything. In other words, there's absolutely nothing that exists that doesn't owe its belonging to the creative power of this almighty God. There is no comparison. He's the supreme authority and he is the God who speaks. Said so as he has spoken through David, through the Holy Spirit in Psalm chapter 2, and quoting from Psalm chapter 2, speaks about how the people plot against both the Lord and his anointed, Jesus Christ. How Pilate and the religious leaders conspired against to have Jesus crucified. But I want to see some of the parts of Psalm chapter 2 that are not actually in the quote. Now, Psalm 2 was a well-known messianic psalm. It's the psalm which in verse 7 speaks of, Today you are my son, whom I have begotten. But let's have a look at verses 2 through to 6 to see some of the verses that come after the part quoted. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So as God sends his son into the world, people, part of his creation, part of Jesus' creation, so boldly and proudly presume we can cut ourselves on from him. He will have no claim over me or over my life. This so-called cling, no claim over me. I love verse 4 of that psalm. It's the only place in the whole Bible where it says, and God laughs. 
because it is so idiotic to think that the God who created everything gives its life and breath and everything can think it has the power to somehow disconnect itself from God's claim over its life. And despite all of their efforts to get rid of Jesus, thinking that by crucifying him would bring that to an end, God has raised his son Jesus. He has exalted him to the right hand of the Father. He says, I have set my king on Zion. Do you really think that you have the power to destroy God's claim on your life? Do you think you have the authority to say, no, disconnect, he's got nothing to do with me? He's the one who made us. He sustains us. He's the one who gives us life and breath and everything. So even if we had the power to disconnect ourselves from it, to disconnect ourselves from life and breath and everything, we're left with nothing. You wouldn't live a second. And as foolish as it sounds that people think that they could do that, people all around the world think that they can. Think that God's got no claim over me, no implication for my life. But it's important as ever today as it was in the day of Peter and John, all of Christians, we're called to be on mission. To to declare the good news that being related to God is what we're made for. And is the best thing for us and how we can come to know God through Jesus Christ. So he's the supreme authority, he's the God who speaks, and thirdly, he's the Lord of history. Remember last year when we did an overview of the Bible that we called His Story? We saw how God has worked from creation right through from Genesis to Revelation, working through the events of history to achieve His good plan of salvation and redemption. But in verses 27 to 28, we see how God is Lord of the history of the recent events to which they're very familiar with. For truly in this city there are gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So this plan that people thought that they had to bring Jesus to an end was God's plan that he had predestined beforehand to do. What appeared to the eye to be undoing the plan of God was actually executing the plan of God. He is the Lord of history. All that he sets out to accomplish, he can do. So he has supreme authority, he's the God who speaks, he's the Lord of history. He is able to do anything. He could have prevented Jesus from dying on the cross, but that was God's good plan, it had to go that way. And so as they come before God in prayer, they recognise this is the all-powerful God who can and does do everything for his good pleasure. And so now we can bring this situation knowing that this is not beyond him, Sometimes his path and his best path is the difficult path. Now we can bring our situation into the right context to rightly understand. So they proclaim the wonders of who God is before they bring the actual request. 
Then we see a prayer which God answers in verses 29 to 31. When the leaders tell the people never to mention Jesus again, how would you pray? We've noted their prayer isn't, Dear God, take away their suppression order. Amen. Or, Dear God, if you love me, make everything good and nice for me. I've known so many people who have been tragically undone by coming to faith through a message that someone told them that if you trust in Jesus, your life will be easy, successful and everything will go your way. That is a lie. And any person who comes to faith believing that will come to that point where their faith is destroyed because they realise that's not reality. Jesus promised, if you follow me, it'll be hard. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not good. He also promises that hardships have a purpose to help us to grow and endure. When we simply pray, take away the hard stuff, we've forgotten who's supreme in this world, haven't we? When we say take away the hard stuff, we presume we're supreme. God, this is the command, take it away. Rather than God, you can do whatever you like. You could take it away, but I don't know your might. I don't know your good plans and purposes. I will just bring it before you for you to do what you will do with it. So this is the prayer request they bring before God. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name and of your holy servant Jesus. That's only one sentence, but there's some pretty deep truths in there, aren't there? With regards to the persecution, they don't say take away the threats. They say, God, consider them. Consider the fact that they've made requests. We're not going to tell you what to do with them because we've already declared that you're all-powerful. You can do what you want. You can turn even difficult things for your good purposes. So we're not going to tell you what to do with it. They've got one request. Grant us boldness to speak your word. And that request is not dependent upon what God does with regards to the threat. Whether it remains, whether he takes it away, grant us boldness to speak your word. They were asking to do the very thing that they've been forbidden to do. And then they say, and that the signs and wonders may be done in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what got the attention in the first place. That's what brought them before the council to bring about this decision. And they say, bring it on. And that's what prayer looks like when your desire is to see God's glory, not your personal comfort, your personal gain. It's a prayer of, Lord, your will be done regardless of how much of my will needs to be sacrificed because your will is always good and perfect. After all, Jesus didn't just say, follow me. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Following Jesus sometimes is hard. Following Jesus is joyful, it is good. But sometimes the path to that goodness is that joyfulness may be a difficult path and it was a prayer that got answered almost immediately and read there in verse 31 and when they had prayed 
The place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered this prayer. And why wouldn't God answer a prayer like this? They are asking God in prayer, God, equip me to do the things that you've already called me to do. Remember, he said, you will receive power, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. It's going to require boldness to speak. God delights in answering a prayer like that to, for equipping for the very things that he's called us to. Now, we're not Peter and John, but we have been called, as the implications of the Great Commission, to go make disciples, to, teaching them to obey all that have commanded you, baptising in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We need to be calling upon God. We need your resource to do the things that you lay before us. Most of you know that in our community groups we've been looking at some training material called the Discipleship Training School. And every single step that we look upon there, we need God's help. Even just making connection with people that we don't know. Building those relationships requires a boldness that I do not have and I will never have. Even if my personality was different, I need his boldness his power, and his enabling. One thing that concerns me, though, sometimes I think when people pray for boldness, they interpret that as praying for rudeness and bluntness. And that's not what I think it intends. Praying for boldness doesn't mean going up to someone that you don't know and saying, you need to repent and turn or you're going to spend an eternity in hell. The same Peter who prayed for boldness tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, the way we deal with those people is with gentleness and respect. I think the boldness that we're called to ask for is a confidence to faithfully proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done to everyone with gentleness, respect, with love, regardless of how they respond. We're told here the, the people were filled with the Spirit same people have been filled with the Spirit before. We said earlier on that there are many fillings of the Spirit. It's not a receiving more of the Spirit, but a, a greater enabling of the Spirit they already have. To be differentiated from the baptism of the Spirit, which is just the receiving of the Spirit once for all. A filling happens on multiple occasions, as we see throughout the book of Acts. But the result of this filling was that they spoke the Word of God boldly. That's what we saw happen at Pentecost. That's what we see here. We'll see it happen as the predominant result of people filled by the Spirit in the book of Acts. But we see another connection going back to Acts 2 and Pentecost. After people were filled with the Spirit and proclaimed the Word of God boldly, we see a summary of a description of a Spirit-filled Christian community. Because we covered that back in chapter 2, I won't go in great detail at this point in time. But I think Luke is trying to emphasise that this filling of the Spirit is not just for speaking boldly in a particular situation. It affects all of life, how you do life together, how you interact as a community. And there are parallels between what we see here and the, the end of Acts chapter 2. One of the outworkings of the filling of the Spirit is that there was unity amongst the believers. Now, unity is not the same as uniformity. Uniformity is when you're all exactly the same doesn't mean they all believed every single minor detail and did everything exactly the same. But they had a common goal. They're all headed in the same direction. One of the things that I was 
uh, reading throughout the week, I thought it was an interesting perspective. Their perspective was that one of the reasons why we have so much disunity in church talking about minor peripheral issues is that people are not captivated and are not consumed by the key goal of the mission of God to take the word of God out to people. Because they're sitting at home twiddling in their thumbs that they've got nothing better to do. Interesting thought, don't they? Take it or leave it. Secondly, the apostles were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. If we saw, there was awe and joy back in Acts chapter 2. And thirdly, once again, we see there is a radical love. People willingly giving up their own possessions in order to support others in their times of need. We see back in Acts 2, it wasn't just, they weren't just selling everything. It wasn't communism of let's pull it all in and all of a sudden no one's got anything. The occasion was they sold everything as there was a need. When there was a need, they said, I'm not claiming this is mine. If there's a need here, I'll happily get rid of anything in order to support another one of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then it gives us one particular example of Barnabas who sold the field that he had and gave the prophets and laid them at the feet of the apostles of saying, this is something I've sold, use it however you will. Now clearly this is not Barnabas selling everything he had but selling a particular field in which he had and we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts people still did continue to own things. There was never a command that you must sell all things but it was just the overflow of the love that they had. They would willingly give up something of theirs to help another. The example of Barnabas' actions kind of paves way for what we look at next week where we see Ananias and, and Sapphira selling something and claiming to be giving all of it at the apostles' feet when they didn't. When we think about the setting for this passage, the background was persecution, wasn't it? It was hardship. But when you read through this passage, what's the central focus of it? The central focus is not the problem, it's not the hardship. The central focus is God. Because as we said, only when we rightly see God will we be able to put our circumstances into perspective correctly. Life's problems should never be centre stage for God's people. God should always be centre stage. Whenever we focus entirely upon the problem, we're going to see defeat, discouragement, and we're going to want to isolate from other Christians, every time guaranteed. Sure, they needed help. They recognised that. They went to the support of their church community. Even more importantly, they brought things before God who, to whom they belonged to, who was able to do abundantly more than all they could ever ask or imagine. But they didn't distance themselves from the other believers. They recognised, we need. This is what God has given us for our growth and for our good. Nor did they begin to doubt good, doubt God, that is, and his goodness, but rather they reflected upon who their God was and allowed that to put the circumstances into perspective. They understood we belong to the God of supreme authority, the one who speaks, the one who is Lord of history, the one who has all authority and power. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are his children. The book of Romans says we are co-heirs with Christ, as in equal inheritors, same level as Jesus Christ in the sight of God. That's pretty special. When Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he says, God, I pray that they would know that you love them, that's the followers of Jesus Christ, 
as much as you love me. Did you know that? If you are following Jesus Christ, God loves you with the exact same love that he loved his son Jesus with. So we can take the advice of Peter from 1 Peter 5.17. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. He's able to do it. But this isn't just more about who do you trust. This passage is about trusting God for a specific issue that we'd be enabled to speak boldly. They've been told to be silent and their response was this, I can't but help but speak about Jesus. It's in my DNA, it's who I am. You can't ask me to behave different to who I am. My identity says I am a follower of Jesus Christ means I follow him. When I look at what Jesus Christ does, he came to seek and save that which was lost. This isn't just Peter and John's identity. This is the identity of every follower of Jesus Christ. That we are his sent people on his mission for his glory. Paul speaks to the Corinthians saying, we are ambassadors of Christ and we are given the role of reconciliation, to reconcile people to God. And just like Peter and John, our hearts should cry, this is my DNA. This is who I am. This is how I want to live. This is what I was created to be. And I'm going to ask you to join with me. We're going to have a time of quiet prayer first that we would pray, God, if this isn't me, help me to know you more deeply, that I might trust you like Peter and John have. And secondly, Help me to speak boldly. Help me to live boldly in accordance with my identity for your glory. So I'll leave that open for a time uh, for you to pray for yourself uh, where you are, then I'll close this in prayer in a moment. Lord, I confess that every stupid thing I do is a reflection of how much I haven't treasured you, who you are deeply in my heart. Lord, change my heart, change our heart, that we might not know just right facts about you, but that we might believe and be convicted to live in light of who you really are. Help us not to be distracted by the things of this world. Help us not to um, focus upon the hard things that come our way, but help us to put our eyes upon Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to see our circumstances in the right perspective of who the God is to whom we belong, who is able to do all things, who has all power, who does act in history, and who is working for the good of his people. And Lord, help us to live boldly in accordance with our identity. We are not just Christians part of a group or a club, 
We are your sent missionaries on your mission, enabled by your power and your spirit and your presence with us for your glory. Grant us boldness. Grant us love, gentleness and respect, but grant us boldness. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.